Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Lord Jesus, as we hear in words what John saw in that vision of heaven, we long for that day, and we We are thirsty, and we thank you that you will fill us, and that you will lead us faithfully to that day at the right time. We ask that you'd keep us faithful as we wait. Lord, may this time, even this morning in your word, be part of our readiness for the days ahead. We pray in your name, amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I want to add my personal welcome to those who are here this morning, those joining online. It's good to be here together and worship our Lord. If you were here last week, you know that Pastor Chris opened up to us the book of Daniel, this word of prophecy from the Old Testament, a captivating story about life in captivity. And we saw that Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and that their oppressors took the best of the best, the livestock, the treasures, the people and brought them into captivity in Babylon. The prophets foretold that the Israelites would be living there for 70 years, so they might as well make themselves at home. The unfaithfulness of the Israelites prompted their unplanned exodus from their homeland. So I'll reread this morning just the opening paragraphs of the book of Daniel to set the stage for this morning's focus. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So here we're introduced to these four young Hebrew men, men whose Hebrew names honored the God of Israel, but who were given new names that honored the pagan gods of Babylon. The siege of and overthrow of Jerusalem occurred in the year 606 BC. And so here, 600 years before the coming of Christ, centuries before anyone came to be known as a Christian, we see in the story of Daniel, in the lives of these four men, what it looked like to live faithfully before God in a time of exile, to live faithfully in a culture opposed to the kingdom of God. And we'll see, as we saw last week, that this old book can guide us today. 
Even though our world may feel greatly removed from what we see in this story of the things of Babylon. As Pastor Chris mentioned, mentioned last week, we may have more in common with Daniel and his friends than we realize. Because we too, in many ways, are living in a time and place of exile. Living in the midst of a culture opposed to the kingdom and the things of God. This morning we'll spend time in Daniel 3, and since uh, the story needs to be told in its entirety to be understood, and since it's such a gripping account, we'll actually read the whole chapter together, focusing on certain parts of it more deeply. So Daniel 3 begins, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of this image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had stood up, had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So now here, three chapters in the book of Daniel, we discover what has become of these three young Jewish men who had their Hebrew names stripped away and had Babylonian pagan names applied to them. We discover that, that they've made good and that they've gotten into trouble. They've made good and that they've clearly quickly risen through the ranks of leadership in the kingdom of Babylon. And they've been given significant authority over provincial affairs. They've demonstrated their potential and their ability. God has been faithful to them and made sure they were successful in what they did. And the king noticed and rewarded them appropriately. But we see that their peers among the leadership ranks also noticed them. Because we're told it was some astrologers, some advisors to the king, who would have been serving alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came forward to tattletale, to squeal on their fellow leaders, and it's quite likely that they were driven at least in part by jealousy 
out of these Jews who had risen so quickly through the ranks. The statue that's been erected for worship in the plains of Dura is most likely an image of the patron god of of the Chaldeans of Babylon, the god Nabu. This is the god for whom Nebuchadnezzar is named. And since the king had relatively recently conquered the kingdom of Assyria, it made sense that he would say, okay, this is now one big kingdom, and we're going to honor me and worship my gods. And so he gathered all the people around to worship this idol, to bow down in reverence to the gigantic golden structure. And we're told that almost everyone does. Almost everyone bows and worships. But the notable exception are these three men who had been born, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So let's pick up the story in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, And there was no smell of fire on them. It's quite a story. 
Nebuchadnezzar gives these Hebrew men one last chance. He's willing, for some reason, to overlook their initial disobedience if they will finally worship the idol at his direct command. Now, even this was a major concession given the ultimate binding authority of the edicts of the Babylonian kings. Usually there wasn't any wiggle room. But the answer from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, uh, nope, not going to do it. Listen again to their answer. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And that's an incredibly powerful testimony. They tell the king they're not going to worship him. They're not going to worship this idol that he set up. They'll only worship their God alone. And it's actually not because they know for sure that God will rescue them from the furnace. It's because their loyalty belongs to the God of Israel alone. And that they'll worship him. Their allegiance is non-negotiable. And so that's too much for the king to take. He was angry when he had first heard the report of the non-compliance of these Jews, but now we're told he's absolutely furious. The text says his attitude toward them changed, maybe indicating that initially he had hoped they'd go along with the plan. They seemed to be favored officials. But when they refused his demands, you can just picture him becoming red-faced, explosive, and he commands that the furnace be, hot, be heated seven times hotter than usual, a way of saying as hot as it can possibly get. He had strong men bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men who had been dressed in typical, the typical garb of Babylon, robes and turbans. And as they were tossed in the fl- into the furnace, the flames were so intense that those who brought them to the brink themselves were consumed by the heat. And so in these three men went, fully bound, into what would have been a giant uh, smelting furnace that would have been used in the kingdom, a furnace used for the refining of metal ore. And it's quite possible, maybe even likely, that this very furnace had been used to produce the gold that overlaid that 90-foot-tall statue. There would have been holes in the side of this furnace for the insertion of of pipes and bellows to crank up the heat. And maybe Knezer looked in through one of those holes. Maybe somehow he was able to see in from the top without being burned himself. But at any rate, we're told the king saw something going on in the furnace that left him very perplexed. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in there? And his faithful lackeys said, certainly, your majesty. The king said, well, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar shouted to the men, come out, come here, and they came out of the fire. Now, first, I want us to make sure we we not only notice how amazing it is that these men are are miraculously unhurt, unharmed in the fire, but also how humorous it actually is that the king had to call them to come out. 
It seemed like they were doing just fine in the furnace. Walking around, hanging out. They were okay. But the king gave a direct command, and this command did not go against anything that their God had told them, and so, so they obeyed. They came out. But then there's the matter of this mysterious fourth figure who had been in the furnace with them. This figure who apparently did not come out. We're not told what happened. This one who looked like a son of the gods. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot that's been written, a lot that's been conjectured about who or what this being actually was. Some have concluded that it was probably an angel sent from God to protect God's faithful people. Some have seen this as an example of what's called a Christophany, which would be an appearance of Jesus Christ himself ahead of his birth to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. But no matter what, it's obvious that what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing is something truly supernatural and miraculous. He's seeing these men thrown into the fire and walking around unharmed. He's seeing this fourth being mysteriously appear. And so he calls out to the men to come back, to come out. And they do. And I love the description we're given of these three men as they emerge from the furnace that day. The fire had not harmed their bodies. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were not scorched. There wasn't even so much the whiff of campfire smoke on them. It's not like they came kind of struggling, panting out. You know, you picture escaping from the flames, rolling around on the ground to get the smolder out of their turbans and robes. This wasn't the scene at all. They simply came out unharmed and unscathed. As we read this story, it might be tempting for us to, to leave it at that, to, to see this as a story of God's provision and God's protection, and to think that, well, that's, that's the moral of the story, that God will provide and care for his people and protect them. And in some ways, it certainly is. But it's so tempting for us to, to leave this story back in the days of Babylon in a context that can seem so foreign to us, this idea of Babylonian empire and living in exile. After all, what do most of us know about being brought into captivity? What do any of us know about being groomed for the service of a king or being compelled to worship a giant statue? It can all seem so foreign. But I want to make sure we take the time this morning to ask a few questions of this story and of ourselves to see how this story speaks to our time and our place and our lives. First, I want to ask, what are the king's commands in our lives? Now, thanks to the religious freedoms that we enjoy in this country, we would not be subject to laws or edicts that would make us bow down to a statue or compel us to forsake worshiping in the way that we would choose to. I think it's more likely for us here in the United States that these king's commands would come in the form of cultural pressures, would come in the form of a non-supportive context for true Christian living. 
Now, if you read the whole book of Daniel, you see time and time again, they, Daniel and his friends actually accommodated the cultural norms around them. Pretty much anything they were asked to do that did not violate their conscience or their religious practice, their commitment to God, they seemed to do. But when the line was drawn in the sand and they were told to cross it and they couldn't in faithfulness to God, the answer was always no. And the worship of this statue is just one example if you look at the entire book. And so what is it in our culture that might run counter to us truly honoring God? Where are the lines in the sand that we're asked to cross, to step over, to violate in our faithfulness to God? I think of our culture's focus on self, on self-achievement, on getting ahead at any cost, on doing our own thing no matter the consequence. These all set themselves up in opposition to the way that Christ calls us to walk. And so does any impulse that, that whispers in our ear or sometimes shouts, you're better than him or her. Or that impulse that says, well, we're better than them. The evils of racism and other forms of hatred we know emerge in some blatantly ugly forms in our world and in our country. But we also know that they can run deep in some surprisingly stealthy ways. And then on the other side of the coin, where, where culture seems to, to affirm and confirm that no one is better than the other, then the, the message is sometimes told, well, and that means that everyone's beliefs or truths are equally valid as well. And our culture can pressure and stifle anyone who, who would seem to be claiming that, that one's truth is actually more true than something else that might be out there. And for Christians in particular, this presents a challenge as we, as we seek to point people to Christ alone as the way by which people might be saved. And so what are the king's commands, the cultural pressures in your life? Where are you asked to, to cut corners, to cross that line in the sand, to shift your priorities, to take sides that contribute to polarization, to lean less strongly into God's way, into God's plans? because of what's happening around you? What voices, even among those who claim to speak for Christ or Christianity, are actually pressuring you to step off the path that Christ calls us to walk? We look at the story of Daniel, we also recognize that there are fiery furnace moments in our lives. Now again, we are not likely to be threatened with a, a literal smelting furnace. But there are times we're given a clear message that if we don't toe the line, if we don't behave the right way, things are going to heat up for us. We're going to feel the heat. We're going to feel the pressure. Maybe it's a threat from, from our friends or from our families that they'll cut us off if we don't fall into line. Maybe we get a cold shoulder for some, from someone because of our faith. Maybe we get a sense at work that a promotion won't come our way if we seem so committed to all this church stuff, this God stuff. We know that around the world we have brothers and sisters who do suffer 
deep oppression, who suffer significant threats to their welfare and even their lives. And while we won't likely face violent opposition because of our faith, there will be furnace moments in our lives. And like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we're going to have an opportunity to decide. Are we willing to go into the furnace, or are we going to see the furnace as a reason to step back? And here I want to make sure we don't miss something that these three young men said that day. They told the king, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he does not. They said, God can deliver us. We actually believe he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we won't turn from him. We won't do this thing you're commanding us to do. And for me, this has been the most powerful part of the story as I've studied it again this, this week. And it's our final invitation this morning to consider how this ancient story speaks to our lives today. Because each of us has, has a challenge and has an opportunity to fill in that blank for ourselves in our own lives. That if even if God does not, I will not turn from him. How would you fill in that blank this morning? Even if God does not answer my prayer the way I hope he does, even if God doesn't bring salvation to my husband, my wife, my children, even if God doesn't heal me or heal the person I love and care about and I'm praying for, even if God doesn't take away my doubts or my fears, even if God doesn't always seem real to me, each of us can fill in this blank in some way that's deeply personal to our lives. And then when we do, we're left with a decision. Will we still follow God, even if God doesn't seem to come through for us? Or is our allegiance and our obedience and love for God dependent on what he does and if he comes through the way we hope? For Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the answer was, yes, we're going to be faithful to God no matter what. We will not turn from him. And because of their answer, this story has a conclusion that I'll leave with us as an epilogue this morning. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so here we see in this conclusion, as the story is wrapped up, 
The King Nebuchadnezzar is coming to a place where he's beginning to see the truth about God, to see the God of Israel the way that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah saw him. We see the king is becoming transformed. Now, it's quite a pendulum swing. He has a rather violent response to going from opposing uh, the Israelites and their God to now demanding worship and allegiance. But we see God at work through this king. We see that this king, who had been so upset, irate at being disobeyed, is now saying, good for you. You disobeyed me. And your God came through for you. We never know what will become of our faithfulness to God. We never know what will happen when we say yes to the right things and no to the things that are not God's way for us. As we say yes, God can use our yes to accomplish his will through us. He can do far more than we would ever imagine in our lives, in the culture around us, and for God's own glory. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we look at this old, old story, and we recognize that you are the same God now that you were in this story from well over 2,000 years ago. God, would you keep us faithful in our own fiery furnace moments that are sure to come or maybe that face us right now? Would you keep building in us a faith like that of these servants of yours that we've seen in your word this morning? God, keep us faithful. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.